Good evening, everyone. This is Iron Will Becker, and I am back with part four of the 5,000-year leap by W. Cleon Skousen, um, starting at principle 17. So if you're just seeing this video, there's three other parts, and it probably I'm going to have a, a fifth part, just because there's so much information packed in this book. And it just gives so much teaching about our founding fathers and the philosophies that they used to create the American Constitution and the American way of life, um, or maybe to reinforce the American way of life. All right, principle 17, a system of checks and balances should be adopted to prevent the abuse of power. And um, Madison writes that the powers be separated as to function, but coordinated for the prevention of assertion or abuse. The whole reason that the United States government is divided into three main branches with different functions and responsibilities is because the legislature was to represent the states and the people. The executive was to execute the and, re and uphold the law. And the judicial was, the purpose was to check the abuse of powers or to pr help, you know, kind of pull back on that some. Um, all right. It is agreed on all sides that the powers promptly belonging to one of the departments ought not to be directly and completely administered by either of the other departments. It is equally evident that none of them ought to possess directly or indirectly an overruling influence over the others in the administration of their respective powers. It will not be denied that power is of an encroaching nature and that it ought to be efficiently, excuse me, effectually restrained from passing the limits assigned to it. The next and most difficult task is to provide some practical security for each against the invasion of the others. And what, what Madison is saying here is the age-old adage of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And power is a uh, power is a force. And maybe not maybe not everyone realizes or understands that, but the use of power is a force. Um, eh, Skazen goes on to say that the people have the responsibility to keep a closer watch on the rep their representatives and elect only those who will function within the constitutional boundaries. Now, I know in today's day and age, some of us feel like we are between a rock and a hard place. We have um, people that we believe have our same ideas, goals, and desires to see for things that happen in our country. And we, we sometimes elect those people. And then they kind of seem to go off the rails in comparison to what we were expecting them to do in terms of the work. All right. 
Uh, Undersecretary of State J. Reuben Clark Jr. explained the framers separated the three functions of government and set each of them up as a separate branch, the legislature, the executive, and the judicial. Each was wholly independent of the other. No one of them might encroach upon the other. No one of them might delegate its power to another. Yet by the Constitution, the different branches were bound together, unified into the, the efficient operating whole. These branches stood together, supported one another, while several, severely independent, that they, they were at the same time mutually dependent. It is this union of independence, independence of those branches, legislature, legislature, executive, judicial, and of the governmental functions possessed by each of them that constitutes the marvelous genius of this unrivaled document. The framers had no direct guide in this work, no historical governmental precedent upon which to rely. As I see it, it was here that the divine inspiration came. It was truly a miracle. And there's a lot of Christians that feel that way, not just members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that they believe that this country was preserved for this nation and for it to become um, a light on a hill, if you will, to use uh, an analogy that Reagan uses. Hey, Tabitha, thanks for jumping on. So... There is a list of 18 items here that are the original intent of the founders. And uh, I'm not going to go through those. I'm going to move over to the next part. It says, It is important, likewise, that the ha habit habits of thinking in a free country should inspire caution in those entrusted with the administration to confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding in the exercise of the powers of one department to encroach upon another. So the whole checks and balance system, um, this was written by, this was a Washington's farewell address. Um, the, the whole system was designed to not prevent the other organizations from doing their work, but to help limit their power. Because the founders expected each political body, each of the three governmental bodies, would be jealous of their own power and ability, and they would then um, maintain control over those things and maintain control over their responsibilities. The last, the last part of this is that written by written by uh, Mr. Skousen is. To solve problems by peaceful means was the primary pers uh, purpose of the United States Constitution. The whole framing, the whole structure, the whole intent was simply to allow we the people a way to resolve problems civilly. Because one of the things that the founders saw throughout European history was things were solved by war, unrest, content discontent. Um, and so they wanted to find a way to work to, to minimize that and allow people to work through their representatives in the Republic 
to get the things that really needed to be done done. If you remember early on in part one of this, we talked about how the Anglo-Saxons and the Hebrews believed that everything should be solved at the smallest level of government possible. If it was a neighborhood, it was a neighborhood issue. If it was a town issue, it was a town issue. Okay? And, and the founders were trying to... Because things were done that way, they didn't enshrine that in the Constitution. And so we slipped away from that. All right, number 18. The unalienable rights of the people are most likely to be preserved if the principles of government are set forth in a written Constitution. Taking from the English customs and the written bills of bill of rights and other law um, created by the par the nobles and then the parliament um, they were able to establish things and kind of force things because there was a clear legal understanding um, he goes on to say that um, The tradition of written constitutions in modern times is not of English origin, but it's entirely American, both in principle and practice. While we have a long history of through England's time periods of writing law and changing things, th there was not a written constitution. We were the first nation, the United States of America was the first nation, to do that, to write a constitution and structure their government. And we can look, since our, our Constitution, there are many nations that have worked to duplicate it. Um, some use parts of it. Some use, some change it to be more suited to their culture, which is what you would expect, is to take um, something of value and work it to be a value, more value to your community. All right, he closes Principle 18 with, Time has also proven the tremendous advantage of having a completely written document for re reference purposes rather than relying upon tradition and a few scattered statutes as the fundamental law of the land. When we look at what the founders did, they created a form of government in like 18 pages, I think it said. Um, and that's phenomenal. And it had a specific purpose to put into clear language what was expected of the representatives of the United States of America that represented the people, as well as the, the responsibilities of the government to the people. In fact, the next principle, principle 19... Is only limited and carefully defined powers should be delegated to government, all others being retained by the people. And there's been some discussion over the Tenth Amendment, because that's what this is, the Amendment the Tenth Amendment to in the Bill of Rights. And there's a huge argument today over what what they what they meant. And if you study historical documents, which I will be honest with you, I have not done completely. I'm in the process of that, um, trying to understand and, and study those things. Uh, I've got a copy of the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist papers to read. Um, but it, it's that 
if the federal government became dominant, it would mean the end of the local self-government and the security of the individual, which arguably is what we're seeing today. And we're also seeing states that are now pushing back against that federal power because the, the balance was that the federal government would handle external issues primarily and issues between the states. So national defense, which included treaties and other things like that, that needed to be done between nations, and then to resolve conflicts between states. That's pretty, pretty limited to what they're supposed to be doing. And the... Let me just read this by Alexander Hamilton. The balance between the national and state governments ought to be dwelt on with pe peculiar attention. It is of the utmost importance. It forms the double, a double security to the people. If one encroaches on their rights, they will find a powerful protection in the other. Indeed, they will both be pre prevented from overpassing their constitutional limits by certain rivalship which will ever subsist between them. Now, here's, here's the problem that we're seeing that has developed is with the institution of an income tax uh, in 1913, which we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about the legal or illegal basis of that, okay? It's it's put in law, it's practiced to this day, okay? But with the with the federal government taking money in um, that really belonged in the hands of the people in the states, they could then turn around and say, hey, state, do it my way, and I got some money for you. And we're seeing a lot of that. Um, there are a lot of states that were, co co I'll choose the word coerced, into extending benefits that they alone could not afford. Whether it was health care, whether it was unemployment, I don't want to get into the finer points of that. I'm just saying that those things were um, part of that, okay? All right, number 20. <clears throat> Principle 20. Efficiency and dispatch require government to operate according to the will of the majority, but constitutional provisions must be made to protect the rights of the minority. And this is, this is really, really important to understand um, that the things were to be directed by the majority, but we could not destroy the minority. Like, we couldn't destroy their rights. And that is something that I feel today has become lopsided. Um, and that... There are some groups that want to take away the rights of other larger groups because whatever the case is, whatever their whatever their cause may be. All right. So this was written um, uh, by Thomas Jefferson, and this was his first inaugural address uh, in 1801. All two will bear in mind this sacred principle that through the will of the majority is in all cases the to prevail that will that will to be rightful 
must be reasonable, that the minority possesses their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. So if we go back to Anglo-Saxon law, um, most of their law, their rights ended when harming of someone else or their property came into play. Unless it was a clear case of self-defense. So, you steal your neighbor's cow. That was that was actually treason and punishable with death. If I remember correctly, that was treason and punishable with death. Okay? Here's the thing. The founders understood that the smallest minority is the individual. And that all rights need to be protected as best as possible. We could argue, but we're human. And um, there's no such thing as a perfect human. So, Skazen goes on to say, we are literally a nation of minorities. And that's really how the founders saw themselves. Is that there was all these different people with all these different wants, desires, interests, and we had to be mindful of all of those things. And they did that by allowing a great amount of freedom. All right, he closes up this, this principle. By, it is the responsibility of the minorities themselves to learn the language, seek needed education, become self-sustaining, and make themselves recognized as a genuine asset to the community. Meanwhile, those who are already well-established can help the United States has built a reputation of being more generous and helpful to newcomers than any other nation. It is a reputation worth preserving. Once upon a time, we were all minorities. And we were called the melting pot for a reason. Because everyone that came to America was expected to learn the language, the customs, not to give up their own language or customs, not to disavow those parts of themselves, but to learn and adapt and to grow. And take on those American ideals. Because that is what made this nation so fantastic. Is that we welcomed everyone. And all that we asked is you obey our laws. There's time, there's time for the discussion on that later. Alright, principle 21. Strong local self-government is the keystone to preserving human freedom. Uh, Skousen goes on to say, The centralization of political power always destroys liberty by removing the decision-making function from the people on the local level and transferring it to the officers of the central government. The golden key to preserving freedom is that local decision making that power is in local hands and that 
that concept I just mentioned that issues should be handled at the lowest level possible. So, for example, um, Jefferson goes on to write that these wards called townships in New England are the vital principle of their governments and have proved themselves the wisest invention ever devised by the wit of man for the perfect exercise of self-government and for its preservation. So, communities were divided up into wards. And that was sometimes, you know, a couple blocks maybe, based on population density. And people would come together in their wards and fix the problems or work on the problems or band together with other groups to fix problems, okay? So, again, the smallest level, the smallest, smallest level. Okay, Francois Guzot says, when there scarcely remain traces of popular assemblies, the remembrance of them, of the right of freemen to delib deliberate and transact their business together, resided in the minds of men as a primitive tradition, anything which might come about again. So the whole the whole point again is that local governance in the small groups handle problems there before they escalate or they spread. All right, Jefferson emphasized the role of strong local government. Um, the way to have good and safe government is not to trust it at all, it all to one, but to divide it among the many distributing, distri distributing to everyone exactly the functions he is competent to perform best. Let the national government be, entru be entrusted with the with the defense of the nation and its foreign and fundamental relations. The state governments with the civil rights, laws, police, and administration of that concerns the state generally. The counties and the, lo and the local concerns of the counties and each ward or township direct the interest within itself. It is by dividing and subdividing these republics from the great national one down through all the subordinations until it ends in the administration of every man's farm by himself, by placing under every one what his own eye may superintend, that all will be done for the best. Free will. The freedom to do what you feel is absolutely best for your family, for your community, and then up from there. All right. Jefferson goes on to write, if the oncoming generations perpetuated the constitutional pattern, the federal government would be small and cohesive and would serve as an inexpensive operation because of the limited problems which it which would be assigned to it. He wrote, the true theory of our Constitution is surely the wisest and best that the states are independent as to everything within themselves and united as to everything respecting foreign nations. Let the general government be, government be reduced to foreign concerns only and let our affairs be 
disentangled from those of other nations, except as to commerce, which the merchants will manage the better, the more they are left free to manage for themselves. And our general government may be reduced to a very simple organization and a very inexpensive one. A few plain duties to be performed by a few servants. Our national budget in the United States is massive. And it doesn't provide for just national defense. There's other stuff it covers. All right. John Fisk wrote that uh, that if the day should ever arrive, which God forbid, when the people of the different parts of our country shall allow their local affairs to be administered by prefects sent from Washington, and when the self-government of the state shall have been, been so far lost as that of the departments of France, or even on closely limited, or so closely limited as that of the counties of England, on the day the political career of the American people will have been rubbed, robbed of its most interesting and valuable features. Of the usefulness of this nation will be lament, lamentably impaired. Basically, in short, it's this. That if the people give up local government control, and pass more and more up to the federal government, they will lose the right and the and the privilege of governing themselves. Now, under the eyes of God, every man is still responsible for his own actions and for providing for his family, as well as being responsible for their actions until they become legal adults. All right, principle 22. A free people should be governed by law and not by the whims of men. They define law as a rule of action, which was intended to be as binding on the ruler as it was on the people. Now, I'm going to tell you that this is something I do not believe is being properly practiced. Um, by many governments within the United States of America, starting at the federal level. Again, that's something else for another time because it's an in-depth discussion or some might say argument. So John Locke pointed out, to this end, it was it is that men give up all their natural power to the society they enter into and the community put the, le the legislative power into such hands as they think fit with this trust they that they shall be governed by declared laws or else their peace quiet and property will still be at the same uncertainty as it was in the state of nature and what that means is that what he's saying is that in the state of nature it was every man for himself and there was no protection except by the, the strength of your own arm or the few in your clan, maybe, just depending on how things were organized. And that governments were created for the explicit protection of life, liberty, and property. 
John Adams expressed the same thought. No man will contend will contend that a nation can be free that is not governed by fixed laws. All other government than that of permanent known laws is the government of mere will and pleasure. Um, Aristotle wrote, Even the best of men in authority are liable to be corrupted by passion. They may conclude, then, that the law is reason without passion, and it is therefore preferable to any individual. Essentially, we should not let our feelings and emotions change the laws at the federal, state, or local levels. It should all be done with clear thought and purposeful intent. Because we, we are not perfect. We are corruptible beings. Because we're human. We are fallible. Right, John Locke says that the end of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. For in all the states of created beings capable of laws, where there is no law, there is no freedom. For liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others, which cannot be where there is no law. So the framework of law is to protect life, liberty, and property, which are the core basis of individual freedom. Excuse me. That you can protect your life, your property, and your own personal freedom. Principle 23. A free society cannot survive as a republic without a broad program of general education. Now, this I found to be quite interesting, um, and I will jump right in here, of course. They made an early provision by law that every town consisting of so many families should be always furnished with a grammar school. They made it a crime for such a town to be destitute of a grammar schoolmaster for a few months and subjected it to heavy penalty so that the education of all ranks of people was made the care and was, was made the care and expense of the public in a manner that i believe has been unknown in any other people ancient or modern and that was by john adams and, and this is that it was against the law to not teach people how to read and it was so important that it be done at the local level, that all of the schooling be run locally. In the American colonies, the intention was to have all children taught the, fundam the fundamentals of reading, writing, and arithmetic so that they could go on to become well-informed citizens through their own diligent self-study. The fundamentals were sufficient to get them started, and thereafter they became remarkably well-informed in a variety of areas through self-learning. This is huge. School was only intended to teach enough reading, handwriting, and math so that a person could function in society. It was not to specialize in um, 
It was not specialized in a science or a math while in school. That's what university was for. Back then, university was for two things, continuing education and theological education. And um, it goes on to say that early Americans knew they were in possession of a unique and valuable invention of political science, and they were determined to promote it on all levels of education. Young children were trained in the Constitution. It was taught regularly in our school system. The importance of our founding was taught at a young age so that kids would understand why America is the nation that it is. All right. Let me go back here real quick. Okay. So early on, before schools were really established, Americans taught the kids to read by the Bible. And um, Daniel Webster stated that it is not to be doubted that to the free and universal reading of the Bible in that age, men were much indebted to the right view of civil liberty. The Bible is a book of faith and a book of doctrine and a book of morals and a book of religion and a special revelation from God. But it is also a book which teaches man his own individual responsibility, his own dignity and his own equality with his fellow man. Skousen finishes up this with, in our, in our own day, the public schools have been secularized to the point where the, no Bible reading is permitted. The founding fathers would have counted this as a serious mistake. And, and the reason I believe that he frames it that way is because when we go back to... Um, let me... It's either principle three or principle four. And it covers what I like, what I've been calling the five pillars of American theology. And if you remember what those are, um, okay, hold on a second here. There we go. The five fundamental points taught in schools. The existence of a creator. The creator has revealed the moral code. The creator holds mankind responsible. All mankind live beyond this life. And the next life, mankind is judged for their conduct in this one. Those keys are so important to the American Constitution, to the American way of life, and to the continuing and the prospering of this nation, the United States of America. All right, the 24th principle. A free people will not survive unless they stay strong. All right, let me look at my notes here real quick. All right, this is... Uh, all right, this is Skousen. He says, It was the philosophy of the founders that the kind hand of providence had been everywhere present in allowing the United States to come forth as the first free people in modern times. They further felt that they would forever be blessed with freedom and prosperity if they remained a virtuous and adequately armed nation. Huh. The First Amendment covers freedom of religion, freedom to assemble, a few other bits in there. 
And the Second Amendment is about the right to bear arms. Notice they don't say muskets, they don't say swords, they say arms, as in military arms. Um, so now you know where I come down on that. Uh, he goes on to say that peace was the goal, but strength was the means. Franklin envisioned the day when a prudent policy of national defense would provide the American people with the protection which their rise to greatness would require. He wrote, the very fame of our strength and readiness would be a means of discouraging our enemies, for tis a wise and true saying that one sword often keeps another in the scabbard. The way to secure peace is to be prepared for war. They that are on their guard and appear ready to receive their adversaries are in much less danger of being attacked than the supine, secure, and negligent. Now, I believe it is Sun Tzu, the Chinese philosopher who wrote The Art of War, discussed this principle. And it was, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember this 100%. Um, it goes like this. It is better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And what he was teaching, or what this, the principle was, it is better to be prepared for what comes than to be caught off guard. And that is why, I mean, first of all, it was an American way of life. When they came to this continent, it was a fight for survival. And I don't mean against the Indians. I mean, literally, this whole nation was a wilderness. There were no, okay, yes, some Indians did have log cabins, log huts. But to the European mind, there were no buildings here. There were no homes here, the way that they viewed things. And yes, I, I know, we could get into a whole discussion about that too. But let's just be focused, okay? The Second Amendment is that the American people are to be armed. That they are to provide for their own personal defense. Which is why they put up such a resistance to the British Army. is because you had boys who had been hunting from 10 or 11 or 12. Who are now 16, own their own rifle and provide for their family. Sometimes at 16, they were starting their own families. Okay. All right. So Franklin goes on to say, Our security lies, I think, in our growing strength, both in numbers and wealth. That creates an increasing ability of assisting this nation in its wars, which will make us more respectable, our friendship more valued, and our enemy enmity feared. Thence it will soon be thought proper to treat us, not with justice only, but with kindness. And thence we may expect in a few years a total change of measures with regard to us, unless by a negligent of military discipline we should lose all martial spirit and our Western people become as tame as those in the Eastern dom dominions of Britain, meaning India, when we may expect the same oppression, oppressions 
For there is much truth in the Italian saying, make yourselves sheep and the wolves will eat you. Living in America was a hard life. It was a life of struggle. It was a life of farming and hunting. Yes, in the in the Boston and New York, um, they were, and in parts of Virginia, they were building cities and towns, and things were growing. But you still had a ton. So many, so many Americans that were fighting in some ways to survive. Franklin goes on to say, to be prepared for war is one of the most effectual means of preserving peace. Nope, that was Washington who said that, but it's nearly identical to what Franklin was teaching or, or saying. All right. Washington also said that, and their safety and interests require that they should promote such manuf manufacturers as tend to render them independent of others for essentials, particularly military supplies. That we should be a nation capable of supplying our military with its needs. Cut and dry. That was Washington. All right. Um, Washington goes on to say, the safety of the United States under divine protection ought to rest on the basis of systematic and solid arrangements, exposed as little as possible to the hazards of fortuitous circumstances. Meaning that our, our faith, our military preparedness, and our example should be the things that influence other nations in wanting to work with us, have us as their friends, and have us um, have us in good standing as as friends. Um, all right. Washington said there is a rank due to the United States among nations, which will be withheld, if not absolutely lost, by the reputation of weakness. If we desire to avoid insult, we must be able to repel it. If we desire to, to secure peace, one of the most powerful instruments of our rising prosperity, it must be known that we are at all times ready for war. And that was that was American policy not in a standing army aspect, but in the regards of the state militias that the the local communities would 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 get together and the men would pick their captain and those captains would lead. They were only there because the men elected him to be the captain. If they didn't like it, he got the boot and someone else got selected as the captain. Um, so, Our prosperity came from our freedom, and our protection comes from the concept um, that Americans are armed. And you know, w whether that the Japanese admiral was right, or he said it or not, is not the point. 
But it was true enough that in America, behind every blade of grass was a rifle. And if you want to look at raw numbers, there's a lot of hunters in the United States of America, the lower 48. Um, Alaska has their own fair share, and Hawaii, I think, has like none because, or none that can hunt really in Hawaii because they don't have large game, as far as I understand it. So, all right, let me move on. Uh, let me make sure I get the right person. Uh, Samuel Adams. The very nature of its institutions is for the support, protection, and defense of those very rights, the principles of which are life, liberty, and property. That is what the federal government was set up to do. He says that the right of free, to freedom being the gift of, of God Almighty. Oh, many, many, many of the founders felt this same way is that the right to freedom was a gift from God and that they were charged with providing that to their fellow citizens. All right. An American inheritance. The founders saw the necessity for a level of preparedness which discouraged attack from potential enemies by creating a rate of risk so high that the waging of war against the nation would be so obviously unprofitable an undertaking. Samuel Adams writes, It is the business of America to take care of herself. Her situation, as you justly observe, depends upon her own virtue. So first, the founders believed that we should be a good nation, a virtuous people. And second, that the citizens should be well armed. All right, principle 25. Peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. And this was a concern early on um, with the founders. And if I remember my history correctly, there were some that hotly debated bringing in outside help to defeat the British. Um, because they didn't want to get wrapped up in financial responsibilities and other things with other nations. All right, let me see here. All right. Skousen says that they, they desired to cultivate a wholesome relationship with all nations, but they wished to remain aloof from section, sectional quarrels and international disputes. That America would stand alone kind of the way Switzerland does. Washington goes on, Washington goes on to write that observe good faith and justice toward all nations, cultivate peace and harmony with all, religion and morality enjoin this conduct, and can it be that good policy does not equally enjoin it? Excuse me. It will be worthy of free, enlightened, and at no distant period, a great nation to give to mankind the magnanimous and too novel example of a people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. Meaning that we chose as a people to stand apart. To be a light on a hill. Uh, to go back to that quote but from Reagan. 
Um, all right. Washington said that the great rule of conduct for us in regards to foreign nations is, excuse me, is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. So far as we have already formed entanglements, engagements, let them be fulfilled with perfect good faith. Here, let us stop. So he wanted the, the, the financial obligations to France. And I want to say the Dutch too, but I don't... I'm not 100% on that part. It, it's been a little while since I've, I've, I've seen, that inf seen that information. So Washington go on to warn that Europe has a set of primary interests which to us have none or a very remote relation. Hence, she must be regarded in frequent must be engaged in frequent controversies. The causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, it must be aware in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the ordinary circum in the ordinary combinations and collisions of her friendships or enmity. Why? By interweaving our destiny with that of part any part of Europe. Entangle our peace and prosperity in the toils of European ambition, rivalry, interests, humor, or caprice. Basically, Europe was fraught with infighting, royal families married, other royal families from other nations, to create peace treaties and European history is just a history of war and, and fighting and all of that stuff. And America was the first place where we were established and we were free. Excuse me, or we were trying to be free of those entanglements with the other nations. All right, let me see. Oh, let me see if I can find out. This looks like Skousen's quoting somebody else. Uh, uh, looks like he's carrying on with Washington. Um, so, okay. He said, Washington said that temporary alliances may be justified for extraordinary emergencies. But other than that, harmony, liberal intercourse with all nations are recommended by policy, humanity, and interest. Which is probably where the concept of, of sanctions on other countries has kind of come from. I'm speculating here because I don't know the history of that and I'm, I'm purely out on a limb. Okay. But the concept is, is that we're the most prosperous nation and there is a bridge in Jersey that says what, I think it was Newport News. I think it says uh, what Newport News makes the world takes. And that is the concept that um, the things that were that are created in the United States were wanted across the world. And in many ways, they still are. All right. Uh, Madison wrote, happily for America, happily we trust for the whole human race. They, our founders, pursued a new and more noble course. The whole idea was 
freedom. That was the high ideal. Um, let me see. Skousen goes on right. Once the spirit of freedom had it encompassed North, Central, and South America, they hoped it would do just as James Madison said, spread abroad until it had become the heritage of the whole human race. Meaning that we interacted with other nations and we did conducted business with them and we worked together because of mutual respect and good graces. Meaning that we were willing, the other nations would be willing to not stir up trouble, put aside their differences so that they could do business with the United States of America. And they really saw that commerce as a very powerful tool not to force nations to do what America wanted, but to encourage them to be peaceful and to do good works. All right. The one compelling duty of America is to put its own house in shape and to stand upon an economic system that will make the natural resources available to the intelligence industry and use of the people. When we do that, the way to world redemp redemption from the folly of present chaos will stand out in our country so clearly, honestly, and usefully that we shall be copied wherever peoples do their own thinking. That was uh, Charles Lindbergh Sr. And um, this next part, uh, who says this? I'm not seeing the name. I'm just going to read this real quick. God so designed it, drawn from all races, creeds, and nations, our sympathies run every to every oppressed people. Meaning that because America... I'm oh, sorry, guys. My nose is itchy tonight. That because America was made up of all these different individuals, all these different groups that came here and lived here... <clears throat> that we would be sensitive to other people in plight, because that's how we got created. People seeking religious freedom um, and political freedom, too, in some ways. Um, let me see if I can see who this is. Maybe this is more of Charles Lindbergh Sr., America, the great neutral, will thus become the peacemaker of the world, which is her manifest destiny if she lives the law of peace. Closing out, since the former Undersecretary of State, J. Of State, J. Reuben Clark, gave this speech, you know, that's all who this is, is J. Reuben Clark. The United States has been involved in three major wars, including the Holocaust of World War II. Looking back, one cannot help wondering how much happier, more peaceful, and more prosperous the world would be if the United States had been following a policy of separatism as the world's great peacemaker instead of internationalism as the world's greatest great policeman. Honestly, that's a whole ball of wax. And I'm not even going to touch it, okay? Because there's, there's a lot of years of decision-making in there that changed our own policies and the way that we as a nation looked at things. And that's something I want you guys to understand. All right.
26. The core unit which determines the strength of any society is the family. Therefore, government should foster and protect its integrity. Crystal clear, right? There is certainly no country in the world where the tie of marriage is more respected than in America, or where conjugal happiness is more highly or worthily anticipated. In Europe, almost all the disturbances of society arise from the irregularities of domestic life. To dispute the natural bonds of legitimate pleasure of home is to contract a taste for excesses, a restlessness of heart, and fluctuating desires. The American derives from his own home that love of order which he afterwards carries with him into public affairs. Because of the way that that America started as a religious nation, a nation that exercised and practiced faith in God, the family was held in reverence. And the father and mother were respected heads of the households. And they worked um, to raise their kids the right way and to make things better. Okay. I know for some this might be a touchy subject, but just understand we can have that discussion at another time. The husband and wife each have their specific rights appropriate to their role in life and otherwise share all rights in common. The role of the man is to protect and provide. A woman's role is to strengthen the family's solidarity in the home and provide a wholesome environment for her husband and children. For the purpose of order, the man was given the decision-making responsibilities for the family, and therefore, when he voted in political elections, he not only cast about for himself, but also for his wife and children. In theory, God's law made man first in governing his family. But as between himself and his wife, he was merely first among equals. This is the Christian view of a marriage. And it is the way that God ordained it. Um, is that he was the first among equals. But that the husband and wife, they, they are sovereigns in their home. Okay. Uh, John Locke stressed the equal responsibility of father and mother and father in rearing the children. He stated that in the term, he stated that the term paternal authority. And accordingly, we see the positive law of God everywhere joins them together without distinction. When it commands the obedience of children, honor thy father and thy mother. Whosoever curseth his father or his mother, ye shall fear every man his father and his mother. Boom. It's that it's that straightforward. It's that down to earth. Okay? And and I know people feel differently. Everyone's family is different. So just understand that this is the Christian view. You 
my family's not perfect. I'll be honest with you. But so, uh, this was this was written by Wallace Notestein. It was the duty of a husband to love their wives and to have due regard for them. It was even suggested they should make financial allowances for them, as some Puritan gentlemen did, and give them a certain control over the household. What is more significant, Puritan writers had a great deal to say about the family and its unity. From diaries and biographies, one gains an impression that husbands and wives, in their common effort to bring about the kingdom of God on earth, lived happily with one another. A common purpose was the best of all ties. We are to be joint, and according to Romans 8, joint heirs with Christ. All right, Franklin's comment on marriage. Together, they are more likely to succeed in the world, meaning the couple. A single man has not nearly the value he would have in that state of union. He is an incomplete animal. He resembles the odd half of a pair of scissors. If you get a, if you get a prudent, healthy wife, your industry in your profession and with her with her good economy will be a fortune sufficient meaning that if you work together things are more valuable i once read an article that said i can't afford my wife and i was like huh and it basically went through and a husband cataloged all the things that his wife did as an at-home mother and If he had to hire individual people to do all those different jobs or pay her based on those different jobs, he couldn't afford, he didn't have a salary big enough to take care of himself and pay her th for that. So, all right. Um, This is in regards to the children. We see the law allows the son to have no will, but he is to be guided by the will of his father or guardian who is to, under, to understand for him. But after the, that age of maturity is obtained, the father and son are equally free as much as tutor and pupil after knowledge equally subjects in the same law together. Out any dominion left in the father over the life, liberty, and the state of his son. Such simple, such straightforward principles. Respect, honesty, a responsibility to take care of your children, to provide for the, the common welfare of your spouse. Uh, understand that the way the founders saw things followed along with what they knew what they saw in society how they interpreted and understood the Bible 
and their own experiences. Thomas Jefferson was never the same after his wife passed away. And his first, his wife and child passed away. Um, there are some that suggest he mourned her loss all his life. Even though he took... Um, oh, I don't remember her name. I want to say it's Sally Cummings, but I honestly... I don't remember his... The young lady that was a slave that he basically made his equal partner. Um, it will be appreciated that the strength and stability of the family is of such vital importance to the culture that any action by the government to debilitate or cause dislocation in the normal trilateral structure of the family becomes not merely a threat to the family involved, but a menace to the very foundation of society itself. So basically... Anything that the government does that acts against the family weakens our nation. Simplest form. All right. All right. Number 27. Um, we're almost done. I'm going to wrap up these last 10, last 11 tonight. So um, this might be a little bit longer, but we're there. So 27. The burden of debt is a, as destructive to freedom as subjugation by conquest. And basically, um, in the case of the individual, excessive debt greatly curtails the freedom of the debtor. It benumbs the, his spirit. He often feels hesitant to seek a new location or change a profession. He passes up financial opportunities which a free man might risk. Heavy debt introduces an element of taint into a man's search for happiness. There seems to be a perpetual burden every, walking, every waking hour. There is a sense of being perpetually threatened as he rides the razor's edge of potential disaster. And basically, live within your means. And that's not something we do in the States very well. Um, Jefferson wrote, I, however, place economy among the first and most important of Republican virtues, and public debt is the greatest of the dangers to be feared. And I think Jefferson spoke out of his heart with this one because he inherited debt, as I understand it. And it was something that he um, never was able to manage for his, his estates, for his estate. All right. Skousen goes on right, but this was not the, the view of the American founding fathers. They felt that the wars, economic problems, and debts of one generation should be paid off by the generation which incurred them. They wanted the rising generation to be genuinely free, both politically and economically. It was their feeling that passing on their debts to the next generation would be forcing the children of the future to be born into a certain amount of bondage or involuntary servitude something for which they had neither voted nor subscribed. It would be, in very literal sense, taxation without representation. Clearly, they said, it was a blatant violation of a fundamental Republican principle. Which is why, today, um, one political party... Oh, I can't even say that anymore. At, a t at one time, there was a political party that pushed back against 
more and more government debt. And there are some people today that push back on that and kind of preach against more government debt and that we need to to fix our budget and actually reduce our expenses, which is a whole nother ball of wax. All right. Uh, extensive studies by Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman have demonstrated that every one of these adventures and non-constitutional activities proved counterproductive, some of them tragically so. Meaning that since the Great Depression, every time the government stepped out of bounds, another branch should have kind of slapped them on the wrist and and called them back uh, and undone some of that law. All right, principle 28. The United States has a manifest destiny to be an example and a blessing to the entire human race, which has been a thread that has been throughout this book since the beginning, is that the people of the Americas felt that they had a responsibility. Uh, John Fisk goes on to say, they believed that they were doing a wonderful thing. They felt themselves in the, to be the instruments in accomplishing a kind of manifest destiny. Their exodus from Europe was that of a chosen people who were at length to lay their everlasting foundations of God's kingdom upon earth. The steadfast faith in an unseen ruler and guide was to them a pillar of by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. It was of great moral value. It gave them cl clearness of purpose and concentration of strength and continued and contributed towards making them like the children of Israel, a people of indestructible vitality and aggressive energy. So I think that's pretty straightforward. Um, all right. Adams wrote, I always considered the settlement of America with reverence and wonder as the opening of a grand scene and design and pro providence for the illumination of the ignorant and the emancipation of the slavish part of mankind all over the earth. John Adams also wrote that the people of America have, have now the best opportunity and the greatest trust in their hands that providence has ever committed to a small number, to so small a number. America was preserved for a purpose. The founders saw it. Some Christians today see it. All right. John Adams later stated that if the people abandoned the freedom gained by the adoption of the Constitution, it would be treason against the hopes of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, um, this book is about the founding of the United States of America. And it's divine destiny in the world to be a light unto others. You may have different opinion, but Mr. Skousen compiled and wrote, and I would say that he probably saw it as a testimony to others that this nation is special and has a special responsibility to the world to set an example in truth and righteous principles. Guys, thanks for joining me tonight. If you enjoyed this video, please like and share it. If you are looking for someone to help you level up your leadership, that's what we do at Turning Leaf Solutions. Uh, you can go to turningleaf, turningleafs.com. That is L-E-A-F-S.com. 
There is a Calendly link there so that you can book an appointment with me to see if what I believe and teach will be a good fit for you. My friends, thank you very much. Hope you guys go out and make it a great weekend, and I will see you guys next week for another book review.